Good morning. It's Monday. It's January. It's cold. And at least where I am, it's dark. There's also a pandemic. And if you have been following public health guidelines in many parts of this country, you probably went nowhere this weekend and saw nobody. And now it's back to work. Canadians aren't strangers to cold, dark winter Mondays. They take their toll on us every year, of course, but for the most part, we muddle through. This winter, though, I don't want to speak for you, and hey, I hope you disagree with me, but this winter has been harder, and millions of us are working through it, literally. We are at home, on computers, barely moving, or we are out in the field, anxious and covered in PPE. Or we're in between jobs, wondering where the next one comes from, or we are working limited hours, knowing that the income's not enough to cover the rent. Our families and friends can provide comfort during times that put our mental health at risk. But what about at work? What do employers owe their employees who are struggling through this winter and this pandemic as best they can? What do employees who are struggling with their mental health right now need? What are the warning signs that someone's light is blinking red? And how can their coworkers help them? Because when the experts say that you need to work through mental health difficulties, they don't literally mean work through it. And it is, as I say this, a long time until spring. So how can we help one another get there intact? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Liz Horvath is the Manager of Workplace Mental Health at the Mental Health Commission of Canada, which has just issued a new guidebook for employers and employees struggling to make it through this winter. Hi, Liz. Hi, Jordan. So I have been calling this the most horribly depressing winter ever, and I guess uh, reading some things I realize I shouldn't. Can you explain why how we frame it is so important here? It's an excellent question because our brains tend to believe what we tell them. And um, when we tell our brain that something is horribly depressing, we tend to focus on the fact that it's horribly depressing and we get more of what we focus on. So the way that we talk to ourselves is so extremely important to focus on things like hopefulness and resilience and we will get through this. And not only that, if we're telling ourselves that, we may also be telling other people that. And we're not walking in everybody else's shoes. We're only walking in our shoes. So we don't know what kind of things might trigger another person or might cause them to go into a downward spiral or be able to kind of lift them up. And what we want to do is hold each other up and lift each other up. So we want to try and use more hopeful language. It's not to deny what we're going through. Absolutely. I mean, it is, we are ex experiencing uh, greater anxiety and we are experiencing greater levels of depression and a lot of stress. But how we talk to ourselves about it and the words that we use really makes a difference in how we can get through this. 
Why don't we talk about mental health in the winter in general? Let's leave aside the pandemic uh, just for a minute because the new guidebook focuses specifically on on winter. What do we know about mental health generally in the winter in Canada? Yeah. Well, winter, we know, can be hard on some people um, and certainly not on everybody. I mean, I'd like to preface it with the fact that some people really do thrive during winter. But for some other people, myself included, uh, winter can be very challenging. Certainly under the veil of COVID, it's even more challenging. But in general, you know, when we think about winter, um, we've got colder temperatures, we've got shorter days, um, the skies may be gray and snowy, and it might be slippery outside, and that can result in less time outside. So generally what happens is that people in Canada will experience a lack of sunlight, um, especially if you're working indoors, and less exposure to sunlight can also result in things like vitamin D deficiency in some people, Mm -hmm. which has been linked to depression. Uh, We get less fresh air. We may get less regular exercise. And some people can experience uh, seasonal affective disorder. We may also be experiencing in the winter more isolation and loneliness because we're spending more time inside. And especially when those outdoor activities that we would normally participate in the summer, I mean, like, For an example, I am a total summer person. I love to go kayak fishing with my husband. We love to go camping. We love to be outside. I'm an avid gardener. You know, we love to walk and hike. And we don't do those kinds of things in the winter. So we do tend to spend more time inside. Also, you know, we tend to indulge a little more in the winter. You know, we indulge more in comfort foods. And we might indulge more in alcohol and, Mm -hmm. and other substances. And then when you look at at the work situation, I mean, work can be really hectic um, at times. And for some uh, for some industries, winter is a really uh, hectic time. It's their busier time. And you know, as people are trying to get more done with fewer hours, fewer hours of daylight, and you're experiencing the busy season, that all of that pressure can kind of add up, especially around the holidays. And then after the holidays, some people are dealing with some of the maybe not the best decisions that have been made over the holidays, whether it's dealing with debt or then looking at your belly. (laughs) When you add a pandemic onto all of this, I mean, uh, I don't have to ask you whether or not that makes it worse, but how does it make it worse? Uh, What are we really struggling with when you factor all those things together? When we're looking at the impact of the pandemic, what we are tending to see is increased isolation and loneliness because of the restrictions, um, because of the lockdowns, because of fear and being in proximity with other people. Also, fear of uh, getting ill can be magnified. And, and as a result of that, people are not necessarily going to medical appointments or they're not going to the hospital to get checked out if they actually need to. And certainly we've heard about uh, some surgeries, you know, elective surgeries and procedures being cancelled because hospitals are kind of at their breaking point. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the increased challenges that we're dealing with. But we're also seeing other challenges like increased financial strain and uncertainty as, you know, a lot of people have been laid off or furloughed. There's a lot of people who are worried about their jobs or worried about um, the jobs of someone who uh, is part of their family or a loved one. And there's a few other things too. You know, there's there's increased sadness and 
people are feeling kind of the sense of loss and nostalgia about what life was like before COVID-19. And of course, this kind of came as a shock to most people. And even though I think we're kind of beyond the shock stage, I mean, we've been in this for almost a year now, there's that sense of of longing and, and kind of looking back to what life was like before COVID-19 and will it ever be normal again? And what really is normal now? So a lot of people are really questioning that. You know, we've also got things like the fear of loss um, and grief with people who have lost loved ones, whether it's to COVID-19 or to other um, causes of death where they haven't perhaps been able to be with their loved one uh, during those last moments. And that's really hard for a lot of people in trying to deal with that sense of grief when we don't have the normal supports that we would be used to uh in being able to to be there with that person and, and go through that. And then... That's a lot. You know, I know there is a lot. There's some really unique things. I mean, this has gone on longer than what most people have expected. And we have uh, one of the main things um, that, that I've really noticed, my background is in occupational health and safety for 25 years. So I tend to really notice like, what are the impacts of the workplace, the physical workplace on the psychological health of workers? And what we're seeing is that with this increased isolation, people are also dealing with ergonomic stressors at home. You know, they're maybe not quite set up yep. with the ideal ergonomic situation at home or they have boundary issues because, you know, they're working from their kitchen table or from their bedroom. And, uh, and then even if they're working out in the field, they're having all this personal protective equipment that they're having to wear and also, you know, the infection prevention protocols and just trying to deal with all of this stuff. It's kind of adding to uh, the burden of stress that people are kind of experiencing. And that brings us to uh, the guide that you and your team have created. Why approach it from the point of view of employers to employees? Um, What's the objective there? We know that it's good business strategy to support the mental health of workers, uh, people who uh, can focus more, who know that their employers care, that have access to resources. They tend to fare better um, because you're reducing that overall stress burden. But when we look at the reports and the studies and we listen to what people are telling us, not as many employers as we would like to see are actually accessing the resources and providing resources and support to workers. And there may be a number of reasons for that. I mean, they may be struggling with, how do I keep my business afloat? Or, you know, I have so much business right now that I just can't keep up. So there's various competing priorities. And when we were developing this guide, we said, well, you know, rather than just giving it out to straight to employees and expecting employees to just implement everything themselves, we have to support employers with how to support their employees and give them the tools, give them something that, you know, they can sit down with their employees in the morning and say, okay, let's have a five-minute chat about well-being through the winter. Here's some stuff from the Mental Health Commission that can really help you. When it looks like a team member or a coworker is having a rough time, what needs to happen and what kind of help is available typically and how can employers access it? You know, we really encourage employers to 
have employees trained. Um, I mean, there are a lot of free resources available that you can refer to. One of those free resources that we encourage people to use is the Mental Health Continuum Self-Assessment, which is available on our website at mentalhealthcommission.ca. But being trained and, and having that knowledge of what does good mental health look like? What are the indicators that we see? And what are the indicators that we see if someone is kind of getting into more of a reacting stage, what we call the yellow, or getting into the injured stage, what we call the orange, or they're heading towards mental illness, which is in the red. So by understanding what those um, indicators are, that can help us to have a bit more empathy towards uh, someone who may be struggling. But the training will also help people to be able to know, how do I have a conversation with that person? How can I help someone in mental distress? We've got tips on talking to someone in crisis during COVID-19. And one of the really important things is, is to create safe spaces for these types of conversations, whether those safe spaces are virtually or in person. And what that means is, you know, create a space where the worker feels comfortable in talking with someone that they trust. And if it's in a group setting and they're comfortable in a group setting, then that's fine. But if they need to talk with somebody privately, create that space where you can have that private conversation or put them in touch with someone who they trust, who, who they can have that private conversation with. And remember that employers also have a legal obligation to protect the personal health information of workers. So ensuring confidentiality is really important and making sure to follow up with them with appropriate action. So depending on what the needs are that are expressed. So this could be things for like making changes to how the work is done. It could be putting some flexibility into the scheduling to kind of help them if they're feeling overloaded. Um, or it could be helping them actually access those resources. And if they're, you know, if you're talking with somebody um, and they're expressing feelings of hopelessness or thoughts of suicide, then have a conversation with them and connect them with resources such as Crisis Services Canada or, you know, you might need to call 911. But be empathetic and show them that you're doing it because you care. When, when people practice through the training and they have resources in front of them and they're able to say, okay, I'm doing it because I care, it, it really helps to, to create that bridge to get over the stigma. I mean, if, if you saw somebody who was struggling to get up because they had a broken leg or they were, you know, slipped and fell on the road, you're going to go and help them. You're not going to say, oh, should I help this person, right? But there's so much stigma around mental health still. And if we see, if we understand the indicators and we do it out of a sense of caring about that person, then we can help them get to the help that they need. From a colleague's perspective, um, if it seems like a coworker is struggling and, and you know, perhaps uh, and hopefully not at the level where you would need immediate intervention, but, but it looks like someone is having a really tough time. How do you open uh, a conversation with them? I think it can be really tough for people sometimes uh, to go into that space with somebody who's more of a, like a work colleague and, and not, you know, quote unquote, a real friend. One of the best things to do is is just to 
ask them how they're doing, if they're okay. You know, you don't want to put the person on the spot and make them feel uncomfortable, but you want to let them know that, you know, here's some of the things that I've noticed. And that's why um, really knowing what those mental health indicators are can be really helpful because you can actually, you know, talk about some of those things that you've noticed. So, you know, I noticed that uh, that you seem really distracted lately, or I've noticed that, you know, we used to be on in conversations for a longer period of time and you've become a little bit more withdrawn over the last little while. Is there something going on that you'd like to talk with me about? So being able to kind of help that person express what they might be feeling because of things that you've noticed is really helpful. But if they don't want to talk, that's okay, but you can still maybe say to them, you know, last year I was feeling this and I contacted EAP and I to- spoke to a counselor. It really helped me. Would you like me to give you the number? Mm-hmm. Like just simple things like that can be really helpful for people. Assuming that uh, we do make it through this winter and uh, with resilience and with hope and and everything else, what are you hoping uh, that we take away from this as lessons that we can apply to next winter and beyond in all workplaces. Are we learning anything? Yes, I think we really are. You know, the importance of mental health has really been amplified during this pandemic. And as we've seen, 40% of people reported that their mental health has declined during the pandemic. And the impact has actually been greater on some population groups. Um, For example, people with uh, pre-existing mental illness, people with pre-existing disabilities, parents of children under 18, um, people who make less than $25,000 a year, and the LGBTQ2 plus community. And we need to do more to support the mental health of people in order to help them weather this storm. And workplaces play a key role those that demonstrate care for their employees and those that have implemented the National Standard of Canada on Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace have been reporting that they are better equipped to provide a supportive working environment and to access the benefits that are available. And they're also telling us that they're seeing that their employees seem to be more resilient to be able to handle the stresses of this abnormal time that we're living through right now. I think the less the big lesson that comes out of this is that if you're supporting the mental health of your employees, that's going to support your business and there's help available. So reach out and utilize that help. Liz, thank you so much for walking us through this and uh, leaving us on a hopeful note. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much. Liz Horvath, Manager of Workplace Mental Health at the Mental Health Commission of Canada. That was the big story. I hope you found that useful. We need to talk to one another this winter. You can always talk to us at TheBigStoryFPN on Twitter. You can email us at TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. You can find us in your favorite podcast player, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. Pick one. Leave a rating. Leave a review. Tell us what you think. Tell us how you're making it through the winter. Do try to have a great Monday. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. 
these kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.